This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So good to be with you. It's such a privilege and a pleasure to be for Vix and I to join you. We've got our teenage girls running somewhere around the building. I don't know where they are, but I'm sure they're having a good time. And uh, as Howard said, we've, we've known the Kellets and the Apples for a number of years, care very deeply for these guys, and it's been just great to get to know so many more of you. How's that? Uh, back from here, you mean? Back generally. Here we go. Okay, how's that sound? Yeah, everyone still hear me okay? Great. And uh, as Howard said, I've been uh, a trustee for uh, a while now. It's been an absolute privilege to be along for the Chapel Arts journey. I am so excited for that, guys. We at Gateway bought our first building about six years ago, and it was a total game changer, just in terms of uh, our kind of our permanence in the city, what it says about who we are, and about our ability to uh, serve God's mission into the city as well. And I'm excited for all that you guys have got ahead of you. And Stan, brilliant. This is great news. The Bible teacher Don Carson, never forget this, says, uh, the qualifications for eldership are remarkable by their unremarkableness. You're not, you don't have to have a PhD, you don't have to run the 100 meters in under 10 seconds, just don't get drunk. Be a kind, good guy, be hospitable. Brilliant, I'm so excited for, uh, for you guys and all that God's got for you in the future. And also, of course, I bring greetings from uh, the rest of the team at Gateway, here they are. That's what it's like in Paul all the time. That was, that was yesterday afternoon. Um, we are, as you know, not just connected relationally with one another in the room, but through our family of churches, Advance, as well. And I do appreciate that unless you work for the church, that, that can bring a bit of an anonymity. So I thought I'd bring a picture and show you. Uh, that's the core team at Gateway. Uh, these guys send their greetings and love you very much and are rooting for you as well and delighted uh, for all that God's got for you as well. Great. Let's get on with it. If you have read the Bible, if you want to understand the unified story that the Bible tells from Genesis to Revelation, it's this, that through all of history and through every event, the, the macro and the micro in your own life, God is and always has been gathering a people for him to love and who will love him and with whom he can eternally dwell. And in so doing, he showers uh, endless mercy and grace on us, undeserving sinners, and that's how he brings glory to his name. That's the first thing. That's what the Bible teaches. The second thing is the inescapable fact that in so doing, he places disproportionate emphasis and bias on serving and calling and filling up his family with the poor. And he does this through his people, through us, through the church. He says to me, come individually, be part of my family, Naomi Kellett and Kezia Augsburger and uh, Christopher Apple, come as individuals, I'm calling you by name, to come and comprise my body, the church, that I now hold up, it says in Ephesians 3, beautiful passage, 
for the infinite wisdom of God to be made known to the rulers and principalities throughout the universe, throughout the heavens and the earth. You and I, God first, are that blood-bought declaration of Christ's eternal victory brought together in the church that even now the angels look on this morning with adoration and praise and wonder and the demons look at and shudder knowing that for all time Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that alone should do us good but even what's even more remarkable that in so doing he isn't calling the grandest and the brightest in every generation. Uh, I mean, uh, look at us. Would, would, you, uh, would, would you choose yourself to be an ambassador to the King of Kings? I certainly wouldn't. But throughout the Gospels, it's, it's on every page. Jesus doesn't go to the highest in society to make his case. The only time he ever finds himself in a palace is when he's on trial for his life. Over and over again, what the Scriptures show us is how Jesus makes a beeline for the poor and the downcast. It's what makes sense of his opening ministerial words in around 30 AD. One day, you can read about this in Luke 4, he stands up in the synagogue and uh, he's about to announce his ministry and his mission to the world and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah out of all the passages of scripture that he could have read and he utters these words. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, in the place of God, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. God has sent me and empowered me to seek out the poor and to call them into his family, thereby bringing good news and comfort and setting them free because that's what's on God's heart. That's how Jesus starts his earthly ministry. And the people are infuriated by this and they drive him out of the the synagogue. Who is this carpenter claiming to speak for God and to be empowered by God? And it says they they take him to a clifftop to kind of throw him over and be done with him. That's how the story starts. That's how his ministry starts. He, he risks all, love and surrender and purposeful mission to the poor. Some time ago, Donald Trump, who was and one day may well again be the most powerful man in the history of planet Earth, said this. He was referring to how politicians sometimes refer to their own poverty credentials. He said, if people are poor generation after generation, you've got to question how smart they are. Maybe it's because they're morons. Two different types of king. Two different kingdoms. Two temples. Two visions. And as things pertain to the lowest in our society, to the poor and the downcast, we Christians need to be sure to develop a framework and decide which framework we're going to adopt, which kingdom we're going to build in participating with God in his plan to redeem all types of people. For his purposes. Yeah. Howard and the elders have asked me to pick up your series today, working through the book of Acts. 
And uh, today we're, we're going to be in Acts 15. Uh, we're certainly going to be looking at the events of Acts 15, um, events that pertain to what is known as the, the Council of Jerusalem and some of the conversations that happen as part of this council, which we'll get into in just a moment. As you'll already know, though, from the kind of the, the series you've been in, in the early days of the church, in the, in the very early days of the establishment of the church, this fragile group of people is essentially comprised of two different types of people. On, on the one hand, you've got the previously Torah-observing Jews with their various dietary and purification laws. And then you've got everyone else. The Bible calls them Gentiles, just common people with no religious background. And together, these groups have responded to the call of the gospel. And they're trying to work out how to live together in community, which naturally, from time to time, causes conflict. And so in Acts 15.1, we read this as a classic example of the sort of thing that comes up in a, in a fledgling church in a place called Antioch. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you had gone through this legal process, this uh, adherence to the law, circumcised, you can't be saved. And so a debate rages, do we or do we not need to be circumcised? And so this and other questions caused the, the local church leaders in the region to converge on Jerusalem for their version of the, the COP27 summit, so the, this big leadership conference called the Council of Jerusalem, at which these things will be debated and decided so that the church can flourish and grow through its diversity and its unity which, by the way, is just as much a challenge for us today. Harnessing our differences, fighting for unity, particularly when you're doing big things like buying buildings and appointing elders. Doing that is important that we do this well and work well together in unity so that we line up well behind the purposes of God and we can achieve all that he's calling us into. And so at the Council of Jerusalem, they conclude that the, the Gentiles don't need to observe the requirements of the Old Testament law, that what Jesus has done on the cross is, is sufficient, and he's done that for us. But noting these cultural differences in the church and looking for a way to help these two groups to peaceably coexist, James stands up, and after much debate, he decrees this. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, though, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from polluted, food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Okay, in other words, coming into the family of God, uniting ourselves with his people and his purposes, should not be difficult, but it does require us to challenge and very often oppose the prevailing cultural paradigms and practices. In this case, it was eating various types of food and sexual immorality. But what we've seen so far is that for all of us, it means having a radically different perspective of the intrinsic value of our fellow man, especially those who the world would regard as worthless. Two temples, two visions. Donald Trump would have you think of the poor as morons, perhaps, and uh, maybe in not so many words, but in so many ways, our culture articulates a similar sentiment. If you don't have what I have, 
that in some way you're less than me. It's, it's, it's there. It's in our hearts. It's in the way that we sometimes treat the homeless through our policies and provisions. It's in the way that we can somehow ignore the fact that some of the most crushingly poor people in the world, literally dying of starvation in the 21st century, are no more than a four or five hour plane ride away from here we, us here in Cheltenham right now. Yeah. We must remember that Jesus came ever so far and sacrificed ever so much for exactly that sort of person. Yes. Now, Paul is recounting, he's considering uh, this as he recounts some of what happens at the Council of Jerusalem in a letter that he writes to his friends, the Galatians, at a later date. And it's actually this that I want to focus on today. This is kind of Paul's behind-the-scenes version of a conversation that happens at this big leadership conference. He says that when he and his buddy Barnabas were at the conference, the key leaders of the church in the region, the apostles, got together to action plan what to do next. And this is it in Galatians 2, verse 9 and 10. He says... James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They called them into the team. They called Stan into the team. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. In other words, Peter, James, and John... They'll crack on and continue to reach the Jews. And Paul and Barnabas, you guys crack on and reach the unreached Gentiles. And we're going to obviously have to think creatively about how we do this and reach these different sorts of people. But what's crucial in all of this, what we must not lose sight of in all of this, in all of the doctrinal discussion, all of the action planning, all of the travel arrangements and the leadership development and the establishment of elders, what we must not forget, that for all of us, we must not forget the poor. They recognize that as we leave this summit of leaders, the Jerusalem Council, full of faith and excitement and ideas, that central to who Jesus is and central to the gospel message and central to the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ, God first Cheltenham, is to remember and to serve the poor. I like to imagine what that conversation would have been like. Remember the master, remember the teacher, remember Jesus, that day in downtown Jerusalem in the synagogue when he got up to speak for the very first time, that day when they were so angry at him that they drove him out and tried to throw him off a cliff. Remember that? That was because he stood up and said that God had sent him into the world to serve the poor, to proclaim good news to those whose lives are bad news, to lift up the heads of the needy, to bind up the brokenhearted. And if it was good for him good enough to risk and even give his life, then it's got to be good enough for us. We must remember the poor. It's a non-negotiable for the Christian. It's not just for some God first. If you follow Jesus, remembering the poor is for you. As you sign all the contracts and give your money and get behind the sale completion of the chapel, you must not forget that outside of those walls, just outside of those walls, is a world in desperate poverty. People living in crushing and desperate pain of all different varieties. And it's to these people and to these situations that the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us. And always has. One One of the prevailing philosophical questions of antiquity 
It was asked by Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and 700 years later, it was being asked by St. Augustine, a pillar of the church, and a thousand years after that, Thomas Aquinas is still grappling with this question, what is it to live the good life? What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? But that question had been answered in around AD 31 when Jesus had stood up on a mountainside in Palestine surrounded by poor fishermen and tailors and woodworkers and had said, blessed are you when you're poor. That's an okay place to be because yours is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is shorthand for for Jesus. In other words, lift up your heads, you poor and marginalized, for I am close to you. I came not to esteem the the glorious and the kingly and the well-educated. Remember, I announced this last year in the synagogue downtown when I nearly got killed for it. I have come empowered by the Spirit of my Father to tell you that I am near to you. Now lift up your heads. Dry your eyes. Be set free from despair. The Lord is in your midst. And then he draws this sharp contrast But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. In other words, if you want to be my disciple, then beware when you stack up wealth for yourself while the poor around you go hungry, because it's to them that I have come. My eyes are upon them. I am close to them. If you only ever work to satisfy yourself by what you have, then you've received your comfort in full. It's all downhill from there. When the Gentiles were admitted into the church in the Council of Jerusalem, there was a cultural cost to them. You can't live like you used to. And if you're going to be part of this new community that Jesus is building, then you can't just eat and drink and consume whatever and whoever you like. In a world where you lived a a short and brutish life in fear that Apollo or Zeus or one of the other many gods would smite you down at a whim, consuming all you could in your short, miserable life was natural. It was completely understandable. Everyone was doing it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So to surrender to self, to deny oneself, especially in favor of the other person, was the most radically countercultural thing you could do. It still is, folks. Nothing has changed in the cultural narrative. Listen to the news, watch the adverts. There is a relentless and ubiquitous ideology that tells us that happiness resides in what you can take and consume and amass. But to follow Jesus could not be more at odds with this. It means giving yourself to the poor, to the tax collector, to the prostitute. I heard a story last week from Burundi where a village was overwhelmed with celebration because one of the women hadn't given herself to prostitution. And they couldn't quite get their heads around this. She had managed to find a way to feed her kids through legitimate means so that she didn't have to prostitute herself. And she was the major outlier in this community in the 21st century. I think we're facing a cost of living crisis. That's why Jesus talks about loving tax collectors and prostitutes. These were two types of people in desperate poverty. One social, because tax collectors were hated, and one material, because prostitutes plied their trade to feed their kids. 
And my sisters, which one of you wouldn't if you were faced with that situation living in Burundi? I had to feed your family. This was happening last week while we were all moaning about the price of butter. We must remember the poor. 10% inflation in the UK. It's pretty bad. It's 1,000% in Zimbabwe. If you buy a loaf of bread right now in Harare, by the time you get home, that loaf of bread's gone up. We're building a, a new building at Gateway as well. Two million pounds. It's nearly finished. Nice, new, shiny building. It's going to look great. PA is really nifty. Nice, new blue chairs. Nice candine on the floors. It's not ostentatious. It's just new. I've given the past 11 years of my life to getting this thing built. Our church has been on this journey for 40 years. Many failed attempts. 11 years. Many sleepless nights. Many, many spreadsheets. Much prayer. Do you know how emotionally attached I am to that building? Not even 1%. I refuse to allow myself to be proud in that building. And as long as I'm a leader at Gateway, I'll say the same thing. We are not building a museum. We aren't building a monument to ourselves. It's not Babel. We are building a place where the gospel can be preached, where the lost can be found, and where the poor can be served. We've used this catchphrase for the last 11 years. Our facilities facilitate the mission. That's all they are. That's all the chapel is. It's a facility. It's a vehicle. But man alive is an important one for you. If you want a place where you can speak and bring and be good news to Cheltenham, well, God has provided for you richly, so go for it, aggressively. Give your time and your money and pray for faith to continue to rise up in you. And when it's done, then the real work begins as you preach the gospel and seek out the lost and importantly, serve the poor. You just don't have any other choice. The gospel compels us into this. It doesn't command you to buy a chapel arts, of course, but this is the vehicle that God seems to have provided you to do all the stuff that he does command you to do, which is to partner with him in his plan to reconcile all of Cheltenham to himself with special emphasis on the poor. And so you've got to be countercultural in this thing. Two temples, two visions. In this world, we are caught between two cities, two kingdoms. The kingdom of money, which tells you to earn and keep and store up. And the kingdom of God, which tells you to work and earn and give it away. And prioritize the most needy as you do. My, uh, my friend, colleague, Matt Hosier, illustrated this so well a few weeks back, drawing from the biblical story or the biblical illustration that you reap what you sow very simple. He just made the point that if you're a sower, if you're a farmer, if you put your hand in a bag of seed with all its potential for growth and vegetation and so on, it's worth absolutely nothing while it's in your hand. You've got to give it away. You've got to broadcast the seed. All your stored up money and possessions are worth nothing in your hand. You've got to give it away. Get chapel art onto your balance sheet as quickly as possible and as cheaply and efficiently as you can, and then do the most countercultural thing you can. Give it away. Give it away all week long for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the materially poor, for the refugee, for the single parent, for the neglected child, for the victim of domestic abuse. Give it away to the family who can't afford the heating bills, who are deciding which meal to drop because the money's not going to go far enough to cover three meals a day for them. Give it to the lonely older person who doesn't see anyone all day long, whose family have stopped phoning and visiting. Give it to the person who is crippled with anxiety, to the person weighed down with debt, to the married couple 
clinging on to their marriage with their fingertips, to the bereaved, to the university or school student who's hit an existential brick wall. My wife, Vic, spent all of her lockdown working for the Children's Mental Health Services, talking to kids through Zoom to try to stop them from taking their lives. There's a world of pain out there. Yes. We live in the fifth largest economy in the world, but I guarantee you that if we went on a walk around this block, we would find exactly these sorts of people, the sorts of people that Jesus came to seek and serve and save in Isaiah 61, the brokenhearted, the downcast, the captive, the orphan, the lonely. Vix and I are, um, we're, not, we're not rich at all. I work for the church. And... Uh, <laughs> Vix. <laughs> Vix has until recently spent the last 25 years working for the NHS. We've inherited nothing from our parents. But here's the thing, and I, and I really want to be careful here. I don't want to take anything away from anybody in this room who's facing the sort of crises that I may have just mentioned. If this church is meeting its calling, then there should be that type of person in the room, who, people who are poor in a way I've just described. But here's the kind of air-to-ground, heat-seeking, provocation missile for us all. Relative to the rest of the world, God, far, God, God first, we are the rich. Yeah. Westerners are the richest, healthiest people who have ever walked the planet. Yes. We're the kind of people, we are the kind of people that Jesus is warning, just be careful how much you store up, how much you keep. There's a world of poverty out there. Give yourself to that. When the rich young man came to Jesus and laid out his religious credentials and asked him what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus said, yep, pretty impressive, good stuff, you're doing good. In fact, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, there's just one thing, just one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Jesus wasn't messing around. That rich young man, that could be most of us. It certainly is in light of the townships that I drive past when I'm in my home country of South Africa, when I go to Cape Town. Kailicha, two and a half million people cramped together under bits of reclaimed corrugated metal, 100,000 of whom have absolutely zero sanitation whatsoever, 600,000 of whom have no electricity, 55,000 people per square kilometre. By contrast, that figure is just over 1,000 people per square kilometre in Cheltenham. And that's in the most developed of the 54 countries in Africa. What do you think happens if you look at those situations in Burundi or Somalia, in Nepal, where you guys faithfully give as a church to help? I heard a, a story a few years back from a, a Nepali pastor who's part of the advanced network that we all belong to, everyone in this room belongs to. He said that his wife contracted cancer while he was trying to lead a church in a place where it's really not cool with the government for you to lead a church. And at the same time, he's trying to lead his young family and care for his wife who has cancer, who later died because they couldn't afford her medication. The cost of that medication was 50 pence a day. I'm not trying to condemn anyone or make anyone feel guilty. Context obviously matters. Living in the UK carries a whole different set of social and professional and financial obligations than many other places in the world, and I'm the first to say that I see this stuff through a first world lens myself. A fortnight or so ago, my car's gearbox blew up, 
And then the next day, our drains blew up. I mean, we literally had a punami fountain in our garden. It was disgusting. And then my daughter's phone screen got smashed, and she needs a phone, so we're to get that fixed. And I was feeling pretty down in the dumps about our finances. And then I realized that I'd lost one half of my favorite pair of shoes somewhere between Southampton and Glasgow airports. And I was like, why, Lord? Surely I'm a man under a curse. And my immediate response was to batten down the hatches and work the spreadsheets and tighten up the cash flow and scrape together all the cash I could to, wait for it, replace my comfy five-seater estate car and fix my normally clean running drains and buy myself another pair of designer trainers. And then I arrived at church the next day, Sunday morning, and what are we preaching on? That's right, remember the poor. And I just felt God say to me, open your hands. Even now, in what you think is your own moment of pain, open your hands, give it away. It all comes from me in the first place. And in my heart, I'm arguing like, yeah, but what about the shoes and the drain and the car and blah, blah, blah. And that same day, I hear a story about a lady in our congregation, our own congregation, Salubrious Pool, right near Sandbanks, who has come to this country from Eastern Europe with her husband and her beautiful daughter in the hope of a better life and greater opportunities for her daughter until hubby starts getting a bit heavy with the hands and the verbal insults and the money. And before you know it, this bright, well-educated 20-something from Romania is in a domestic violence refuge with her daughter. One tiny room. I mean, literally, it is the space that I'm standing in now for them to cook and sleep and store all their earthly possessions. They're a million miles away from their friends and their family. And she has zero job prospects because of her language. And she has a rock-bottom credit rating. Because when you have to flee your family under the cover of night, well, you're also fleeing your job. And if you flee your job, you can't pay your bills. And so before you know it, overnight, you're isolated. You're afraid. You're in debt. Your credit rating drops through the floor and you have no job. Brilliant to get behind cap. They help with all this kind of stuff. And when you have no money and no job and no credit rating, landlords do not want to hear your sob story. And so it becomes impossible to get back out of the domestic violence refuge. And so I'm speaking to the manager of the refuge and they're showing me a thousand applications for people trying to get into the refuge, but they can't get in because you can't get out. They can't create space. And so she's stuck there with no food and no clothing. And I get a call from a guy in the church whose wife knows her as I'm lamenting my broken car and my missing converse over my wonderful roast dinner. And he says that he's just trying to scrape some money together for her to help her to get some food because they've got two weeks in the month ahead and they've got no food and they've got no furniture to sit on to eat it anyway. And then I stop complaining. And I realize that I'm the rich young man that Jesus warns. Except I'm not young. And I've been following him for 25 years already. Last Friday, I was given an update about Carly. Everyone in our town knows Carly. She's a bright, beautiful woman whose kids go to school with my colleague Donna's kids in a really nice local primary school. Donna and uh, Carly used to drop the kids off in the mornings until Carly one day started drinking. I've often seen her on the road outside our building since she's filthy, dirty, shaking from heroin withdrawal with her pimp standing right next to her. She's often got black eyes from where he's beaten her up. I heard... I heard last week that Carly had died. Middle class, 35-year-old woman who had shoved down her pain and her isolation until it exploded into a full 
life crisis that ripped her from her family and took away her life? What might have happened if we as a church were able to more quickly respond to Carly and tell her that her life was valuable and that Jesus prized her as his little girl and that he's exactly the sort of person that he came for? As I said, I'm, I'm not rich. You're probably not rich, but in relative terms, oh, my word, God, first... Everyone in this room who has a roof over their head, food in the fridge, running water, sewage, clothes for tomorrow morning, and a means to clean themselves in private has pretty much won the lottery. Yeah. Anyone here who qualifies for income support or a job, who can go down to the GP tomorrow and make an appointment to see a qualified doctor or get free surgery in a sterile environment, think again about my Nepali friend, who can give their kids a glass of water without worrying about whether they're going to get cholera. Everyone who's free of addiction and the slavery of debt. If you are in that category, you need to understand that we are at some level that rich young man that Jesus is talking to. And we have a responsibility to lift up all who aren't. There are so many ways to serve and bless the poor. But I think the chapel gives you an exponentially greater vehicle to do that now. This is what we're doing at Gateway right now. Let Let me give you some context. Our church budget does not add up. I worked in the corporate world for many years. If I showed someone, my colleagues in the corporate world, our budget, they'd laugh at me. It doesn't add up. We're in serious deficits. But we're opening our building two days a week, soon to be three. We're pumping out valuable, expensive heating all day long so that we can create warm spaces for the elderly and the refugee and the lonely and so that we can, as happened last week, host a support group for victims of domestic violence. Seven ladies in a room with two of our leaders slowly and painfully expressing the abuse they'd experienced, one of them literally almost vomiting as she recounted the wounds that her husband had gave her, one of them crying her eyes out as she talked about the hopes that she'd had as a young woman, full of optimism, uh, her and her young husband, before he got ill and started gambling and the punches began. One lady another day telling how she'd been drinking bleach because she just couldn't get herself clean enough from her life experiences. Two weeks ago, Eddie, 70 years old, walks into the building on a Thursday. He's got tears in his eyes because he's so lonely and has been since his wife died and his kids don't visit anymore. Person after person coming into our midweek warm spaces, talking about how they can't afford food. It's not, it's not difficult. You open the doors, you turn the radiator on, you make a cup of tea, and you listen to someone's story. The scale is overwhelming, and you just can't solve every problem. But you've got to start somewhere. And to do that, I believe you've just got to faithfully do the next thing that's in front of you, the next person who's in front of you. You'll have opportunities throughout your lives to do that as individuals, and now you'll have opportunities to do that as one body as well. That list again from Isaiah 61. Tell me you don't know people like this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon you to bring good news and warm spaces and meals and hospitality and a shoulder to cry on and wide open doors at Chapel Arts to the brokenhearted. We all know people who are brokenhearted. The widow, the bereaved, the relationally broken, the isolated. Those people are all around us. The captive. Tell me you don't know someone who's held captive by debt or anxiety or guilt or depression. These are the poor. Those who mourn. Think again about my friends in the domestic violence refuge who had hopes and dreams of family and a future and who've lost everything through no fault of their own. Our neighbourhoods are so full of mourning people. 
who have lost hope for one reason or another. There'll be mourning people in this very room today. I'm acutely aware of that. I've been a pastor for many years. I know how it goes. So it stands to reason it'll be out there too. People who wake up day after day with no social contact. The phone never rings. The doorbell never goes. The grandkids don't write. Dinner for one. Every single day. That's who Jesus came for. That's who he has his eye on. That's who he loves. That's who he has sent us to minister to and be good news to and bring good news to. He's empowered you to do this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon you for this task. I just want to close with this thought. Man, I could speak about this stuff all day long. I'm sorry, Howard, I probably have. No, you could. But here's... <laughs> you use less time than I Okay, good. <laughs> here's where I think we just need to center some of this stuff. We need to remember lest we take on the Donald Trump philosophy to the poor, that at one time, all of us were poor, that before we knew Christ, we were in the worst kind of deathly poverty, and that life without Christ is hopeless. It's just a futile exercise in endurance. What could be more hopeless than that? And that when Jesus stood up in the synagogue that day and announced his plan to reach the lost and the poor, people like you and I, that his first words were that he has come to bring good news. And this is that good news, that you and I and the watching world, the poor and the downcast, no, no, no longer need to live isolated, hopeless, captive, grievous lives. Nobody does, because our Jesus has gone to the cross for you, yes. for the world, and taken away their sins and made it possible for us to find the ultimate riches in relationship with the Father and to find salvation and hope and purpose and fulfillment of spirit. Yeah. Paul explains it to the believers like this. For you, God first, know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became ever so poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Yeah. Yeah. There's a clash of kingdoms right there. It doesn't matter who you are or what you own or you don't own or how many followers you have on Insta. What lifts our heads and dries our eyes and mends our broken hearts is that Jesus has been to the cross for you. Yeah. He's taken your poverty upon himself and he's given you his riches. And it's on free offer to anybody who yet doesn't know that. It's on free offer to the world. A world in terrible pain and poverty. And he's empowered you. The spirit of the sovereign Lord has empowered you to go and tell and serve and bless and throw wide your doors. Throw wide those chapel arts doors and call in the poor and the lost of Cheltenham. And with every meal you serve and with every radiator that you turn on and with every cup of coffee that you make and with every conversation you hear, point them back to the one true source of every healing and treasure that they'll ever need. Relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. God, first, I love you guys. I, uh, I'm for you. I'm rooting for you. I'm praying for you. And I'm excited for you. Just go and smash it for the... For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.